When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. President Biden likes to be the big thing. He likes to put out the big concepts. There's still a long way to go with this flat tax. We have to break the partisan bond. This isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. This is an American issue. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Good Friday. Thanks for joining us on a busy, if not historic, day in politics as the G7 gets underway officially. And President Biden moves toward the main event of his trip through Europe next week's meeting with Vladimir Putin. This hour, we talk about it with Bloomberg National Security reporter Nick Wadhams. And we'll be joined later by Bloomberg politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis today together to better understand the White House strategy on the world stage this weekend and whether anything will come of it. Bloomberg Sound On is live today from high atop Bloomberg's Boston Bureau with a gorgeous view of the Golden Dome on Beacon Hill. On Monday, Bloomberg Sound On makes its return to the nation's capital, where I will be based covering politics in Bloomberg's Washington Bureau, bringing you stories and voices that matter every day here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew. Thanks for sharing part of your Friday with us. Now, with an eye overseas, we bring in Bloomberg National Security reporter Nick Wadhams, who's preparing for next week's meeting between President Biden and Vladimir Putin in Geneva. Nick, it is great to have you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's already been a lot of bluster, a lot of chest thumping ahead of this meeting, and that comes with the territory, right? But Joe Biden says he's got a message for Vladimir Putin. What is it? Uh, well, it, it's uh, what he's been saying for some time. The U.S. wants to establish what Biden calls a, quote-unquote, stable and predictable relationship. So what you're hearing uh, from this administration is they don't really think there's any realistic chance that the relationship with Russia can get any better. There's going to be no Obama-era reset or no uh, sort of bromance the way that uh, Donald Trump always said he wanted to be friends with Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Uh, instead, what we're sort of getting is that they're saying they want to establish guardrails, really, to keep things from getting any worse. Well, that's, I guess, a place to start, at least. Uh, we heard this morning, uh, earlier today, from conversation with Bloomberg's David Weston and Amanda Sloat, Special Assistant to the President and National Security Council Senior Director for Europe about President Biden's agenda for the G7 summit. Let's listen to that first with Sound On, then I'll ask you about it. I think he's really going to have the wind at his back as he goes into this meeting with President Putin. He will have engaged with the world's leading industrial nations. He also will have engaged with our closest military and political allies. Uh, and I think very much a part of the messaging coming out of NATO is going to be continued commitment to the alliance, to its Article 5 commitment, uh, to the deterrence and defense initiatives of NATO which really are at its core, uh, continued consultation with our allies, including those on the 
eastern flank. And I think all of this will put the president in a very strong position when he sits down with President Putin at the end of this trip. Amanda Sloat speaking exclusively earlier today with Bloomberg's David West. And Nick, the timeline strikes me then as being critical here. Putin is watching Joe Biden go through this G7 every day, and he will through the weekend leading up to the meeting. What does that do for Joe Biden's credibility? Well, I, I think what you're seeing is that Biden is essentially trying to show everybody that he is not Trump. So they're obviously, as Amanda mentioned, they're trying to send a very clear symbolic me message. The question I have is whether it matters at all. Uh, U.S. leaders before Donald Trump were very much united with uh, European allies, uh, very firmly believed in, in NATO and uh, and the same sort of symbolism, showing unity with Europe and using that to confront Russia. And that really has not tempered Vladimir Putin's behavior uh, for many years. I mean, look at the invasion of, of Ukraine in 2014 and then yeah. uh, cyber attacks, the election hacking and all sorts of things. So uh, the wind maybe is, is back from a symbolic perspective for, for European leaders who are no doubt relieved that, that Joe Biden is talking uh, talk that's sort of what they want to hear. Whether that changes uh, Putin's calculus, on the other hand, is, is something else entirely. I understand there are reports today, and maybe you know a little bit more about this, that there may not be the traditional uh, joint news conference following the bilateral meeting. And God knows most people remember the one uh, with Trump and Putin uh, that made so much news and, and led to so much controversy. But what would that say about this relationship if Vladimir Putin or Joe Biden didn't end up standing together at podiums side by side talking with reporters? You know, I, I've been talking to folks about this for the last couple of days because we heard uh, a couple of days ago, indeed, that, 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 that Joe Biden did not want to do a press conference or was thinking of not doing a press conference with Vladimir Putin. I, I think there are a couple issues there. One is from the U.S. side, there's a question of, well, why give Vladimir Putin this stage? Uh, obviously, they want to avoid a, one of those Helsinki moments uh, when that, that press conference with Donald Trump was was so disastrous. But, you know, the other thing is this is going to be a long trip for Joe Biden and, and Russian state media and officials there have have sought to uh, highlight, you know, his past gaffes and his age and things like that. And any slip up could be used against him. Uh, but really, I, I think the big thing is when when Putin has such a, a tough uh, sorry, when Biden has such a tough message to deliver on human rights and, and other things, what what sort of unified message would they possibly have to give? It's just going to be a conflict-ridden situation uh, where the U.S. essentially has nothing to gain and Putin has everything to gain from that platform. It's a lot of good points there. And when we talk about uh, issues that they may discuss, are any of them being aired out in this G7? As we look at the agenda, the communique from the G7, I'm hearing things about cybersecurity, obviously the effort to vaccinate uh nations in need when it comes to COVID. But in terms of the undoing of Trump, I think, as you put it, and, and trying to leverage the G7 against Vladimir Putin, what are the issues that President Biden's talking about with European leaders that matter at this moment? Well, there are two big ones. One is obviously cybersecurity. So they want Russia to cut out the, uh, the state-sponsored attacks that um, have happened so many times in recent years. But they also want Russia to crack down more on on companies, uh, on outfits, uh, on malign actors based in Russia that essentially uh, are given a free hand, even if the government is not involved in what they're actually doing. So that's a big one. The other, the other is strategic stability, arms control. Uh, the New START uh, arms control agreement expires in a few years. Those sorts of negotiations take ages 
to to work on. So there's a lot of uh, desire from the G7, from from European nations, certainly from NATO, for the for the U.S. and Russia to get get their their hands dirty and really get into the nitty gritty of a negotiation that would look at a, a longer lasting arms control regime. So so that's that's going to be I think two of the big potential deliverables that come out of uh, uh, the the Putin Biden meeting. We're talking with Bloomberg National Security reporter Nick Wadhams, who specializes in foreign policy. And that's why we're talking about the G7 here on Bloomberg Sound On on the way to the meeting with Vladimir Putin. Uh, is it a little bit cute at the same time here for Putin, though, Nick, when we talk about, you know, the the G7 calling on Russia to, to hold to account groups that conduct ransomware? I can sort of see him smirking from here. <laughs> I mean, that is the issue. And, and what you've seen for the last couple of years is leaders like Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, looking increasingly emboldened. I mean, it was only a couple of days ago that a Russian court declared opposition leader Alexei Navalny's entire uh, group, uh, essentially an extremist group. Uh, so they've only continued to crack down more to uh, uh, commit human rights violations, things like that. I mean, the, the, that issue where the, where Belarus, with Russia's backing, yanked this uh, opposition journalist off a plane flying from yeah. Greece to Lithuania. I mean, you know, those are the kind of moves that that an emboldened leader takes, not someone who's cowed uh, by the U.S. and Europe. So I, I expect there will be lots of urging, lots of pressure, lots of calling upon Vladimir Putin. Big question is whether it moderates his behavior. So far, the evidence is no. Well, President Biden certainly has uh, his work cut out for him on a couple of these issues. Uh, and, and as we're discussing, they're airing out here at the G7, but he'll have a little bit of time in between, right? Do you have a sense, Nick, of what uh, the beginning of Biden's week is going to look like heading to Wednesday? Uh, well, the big thing is going to be a NATO summit. So uh, this is the G7 meetings are really supposed to be uh, economic and focused. And also, obviously, the pandemic has dominated that. But you're, you're going to see Biden... Uh, repeating this message that that's happened throughout his that happened throughout his campaign of of real support and commitment to NATO um, that wavered a little bit under Donald Trump when when he threatened in, in early in his presidency uh, behind closed doors to pull out. So uh, that that's really going to be the emphasis. And then he's going to be meeting with EU leaders. So again, you know, it's this it's this message that they keep ringing throughout their for the early days of the administration. None of the things the U.S. wants to do. Uh, it can't. It can do without the support of allies, partners, and and these are the big ones: France, the UK, Germany. Uh, they really want them on side as they go about pursuing the commitments that, and the priorities that are most important to them, and that's confronting China, confronting Russia. It's you know the economy, getting the economy back back on track in the pandemic. So it's really this whole symbolic i see this visit as much more of a symbolic issue you know really showing his commitment as he said many times you know quote unquote america is back so that's what that's mm. the theme he's going to be hitting at the nato summit we even heard boris johnson using his tagline uh to to build back better today and i suspect not a coincidence that uh, that the announcement that uh, that angela merkel would visit the white house in the middle of july all of this kind of leading up to uh, the big showdown next week. That's right. That's right. I mean, it, uh, none of these announcements are made in a vacuum, and, and usually they're timed very precisely to send a very distinct message. So the U.S. and Germany, they're having a little bit of tension over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, they disagree on that, but the Biden administration decided it would not directly challenge Germany. It's going to be a topic of discussion, but 
you know, whether it works or not, the message he wants to project is, yes, we have differences, but we're going to deal with them uh, in a good-natured way. Uh, you know, a lot of critics, Republicans, for example, say, well, if you do that, you're not going to get everything you want. You're going to sacrifice some of your, your biggest national security priorities. That's, that's something that uh, the Biden administration still hasn't been able to settle. Only have 30 seconds here, uh, Nick Wadhams. Are, are we then drawing uh, battle lines here, or are we moving towards some sort of reconciliation with Russia? <laughs> it, I, that is the thing we will all be watching for. Uh, uh, Biden says not, not battle lines, not reconciliation, but somewhere in between. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Sound On live from Boston. I'm Joe Matthew overlooking the back bay this afternoon, including Boston Common, where the fireworks we have learned will actually go off on the 4th of July, as you've been hearing throughout the day on Bloomberg Radio, even if the Boston Pops are going to be playing in Tanglewood. You'll hear all about it on Bloomberg. Can't wait for the 4th. All right, let's bring in the panel. Bloomberg political contributors Jeannie Sheehan, Zeno, and Rick Davis are together today to talk about a number of the issues that we just talked about with Nick. Uh, Wadhams, the G7, and the implications, the policy implications. It's great to have both of you here. Jeannie, I want to start with you and talk taxes. And a new agreement in the works here to establish a 15% minimum corporate tax. Are we talking about an agreement on taxes or actual implementation? We are talking about an agreement, and implementation is, of course, a long way off. So we've got a ways to go on that. We not only, you know, we did get a G7 agreement, but then next you have a G20 agreement that's got to be had. And then, of course, you've got a number, about 100 other, 120 other countries that have got to get on board to get to that 140 number. And, of course, we and the U.S. remain one of the most difficult as we think about, you know, is there a will in the U.S. Congress today to move to that 15% corporate tax. I'm not so sure it's there with a 50-50 split Senate. So a ways to go, but of course, it was a historic step forward that the G7 got there in the first place. What are we thinking about this, uh, Rick Davis? 15% better than 21%? You know, I've always liked flat tax. <laughs> so there's a lot of Republicans. So the fact that we're going to have a global flat tax for corporations. Is that what they should uh, call it? Yeah, that's what I'd call it. <laughs> Uh, it, you know, it, it, it makes some sense. You know, the, the biggest concern that you hear on Capitol Hill uh, from any increase in a corporate tax is that we're going to run our companies overseas and, uh, and they'll find havens to operate more efficiently. So, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting if they can tackle it. Jeannie's right. It's, uh, they got a lot uh, ahead of them to, uh, to do advocacy-wise. But uh, it's a heck of a get, a get for uh, Joe Biden and his finance team coming out of this G7. And it may be one of the few things that he actually can claim victory on. So um, I think that this will start a debate mostly in Europe uh, yeah. and, until we get some more velocity behind it. And do we assume that legislatures are going to go along with this, Jeannie? I, I would not assume anything at this okay. point. <laughs> you know, you look at just the case of Ireland, for instance. There's a long way to go to get countries like Ireland on board because, of course, they have benefited from being able to lower their tax rate and to attract companies over there, particularly tech companies. And as we see this legislation introduced today in a very different context in the U.S. Congress, which may rein in some of these tech companies in the U.S., it's hard to say whether there's going to be an appetite 
translate for that in the number of nations that would need to get on board. So a while to go, but it is, a, I want to stress, it was a very good day for Janet Yellen. She lowered expectations on her way over. She said, you know, it's probably a long ways down the road and, and they were able to get there. So a big win as a first step, if you will. Rick Davis, what does it mean for here at home? What's that debate going to be like on Capitol Hill? And will, will Republicans use the sort of European angle here to, to somehow appear anti-American? Well, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of wood to chop on taxes, right? I yeah. mean, they're going to look first as to how all these things are going to affect the domestic uh, situation, and especially these big ticket items that the Biden administration is trying to get past Congress, all of which have been presented as tax increases as a funding mechanism. So uh, I think that when you start looking at these things in a vacuum, you know, will there be support for a you know, global 15% minimum corporate tax? Well, that depends on what it's going to look like in the domestic corporate tax world or, you know, what real rates are going to be for individuals or what are they going to do with, a, you know, uh, other other tax issues like gas taxes to fund infrastructure. So mm -hmm. I think I think taxes will be probably one of the singular most hotly debated topics on Capitol Hill between now and certainly the end of this budget cycle. We talked a little bit uh, yesterday, Jeannie, about electric vehicles, about climate change and, and that aspect of the communique that will come from the G7, outlining a plan essentially to accelerate the shift to EVs or, or, or zero emissions vehicles in the coming year, as much as GM and Ford are already doing. But I keep hearing every day about the cost of raw materials, that we don't have the stuff to make this, that there's going to be a major economic implication here. And it, it might not be an easy one for a while. I, I think that's right. And and as we look at the impact that COVID in particular has had on the supply chain, it makes it that much more difficult to ramp that sort of thing up if there is an agreement quickly. That said, if they are talking, as I've heard, you know, five, 10 years down the road and they set a target, it is an important first step, you know, and for the United States and I think for Joe Biden in particular, if the U.S. can take the lead on something like that, particularly after the Trump administration and after the pullout of the climate accord. I think it's an important way for the United States following up on Joe Biden's environmental summit that he successfully held online, not in person like this. Um, it's an important way for them to say the United States is changed under the Biden administration. We are committed to dealing with the issues of the environment. And I think that's going to be a welcome message to our allies overseas. How does this uh, how does this move forward, Rick Davis? You've obviously got a lot of companies that could benefit from this as well, and that's good for people who have automakers and parts makers and suppliers in their districts. Yeah, this is a, a, a real infrastructure play, right? I mean, the the digital economy on the financial side is uh, getting a lot of our attention, but the reality is we are transforming a lot of the infrastructure we have around mobility. Um, uh, it's already happening in, in cities and municipalities across the country. Where, so does this have bipartisan support before we take uh, a break? There will be some Republicans who will want to join this, 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 this movement. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce.
Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow, did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan, let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 11.30, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. Welcome to Friday and Bloomberg Sound On. Thanks for joining us as we turn to what is arguably the biggest debate to be had the rest of this year in Washington. And yes, that's infrastructure. Can't get enough of it. And joining us to talk about it, U.S. Congresswoman, Washington, D.C.'s delegate to the U.S. House of Representatives, Eleanor Holmes Norton. A great opportunity to speak with you. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg. Of course. Well, we wanted to talk to you about infrastructure here, and I think the best place to start at the moment, because we have so much yet to figure out, is how to define it. And that seems to be what's kind of circling this debate here. We can talk about bridges, roads, and tunnels, but when you start moving on from those uh, those sort of more obvious elements of the infrastructure debate, things start to get into the gray area. Is that really what needs to be hammered out at this point, as opposed to dollars and cents, what we actually call infrastructure? Only part of it, even with what we call classic infrastructure, their, their bid was low, the president wanted to add in uh, other areas that we concede are not typical infrastructure, and the, 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 finally the talks broke down altogether. He's now dealing with the so-called problem-solving caucus. I'm a member of that caucus as well, mm -hmm. but it consists of Democrats and Republicans who look for a third way. So does, what, what is that third way, and, and is it actually taking shape? That's what we're trying shape? to find out. We, we don't know what the third way is yet. That's what we're trying to find out. Well, we saw a number. I think it was $1.2 trillion. Should we be obsessing over numbers here? Is this about dollars and cents, or is it a conceptual debate at this point? Frankly, it's become both because their number, even for infrastructure, was far too low. But when you add in the additional matters that the president hoped to cover, uh, the numbers really fall apart. So we're going to need some kind of a uh, compromise. There is a uh, bipartisan group of senators. They, they haven't indicated what their, uh, what their deal is, but that could help us get through this. I was on a, a markup this night and the next morning went to bed at 5 o'clock in the morning because we have marked up a traditional infrastructure bill already in the House. Mm -hmm. And that is going to the floor. It's got to be done this session because the bill runs out this session. We need a new bill. We need to do something. Does talk of reconciliation encourage you or make you nervous? I'm not sure that this fits reconciliation. How come? Uh, uh, because of uh, the parameters around reconciliation, but it does not—it doesn't bother me. 
However it gets done is your point. Exactly. As we spend time with Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. Uh, I'm just curious to ask you uh, what you're looking at in your own district. If you could talk to us about the District of Columbia in this case and, and maybe bring that home to some specifics. What, are, what, what do your constituents need? The, the district is a city that people drive through in order often to get someplace else in what we call the DMV, the, 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 this uh, area. We don't want to see our highways widened but we would like the bill to take into account teleworking. We believe that a revolution has been made before our eyes uh, during this pandemic and that there will be less use of the roads altogether as people telework. Already we're seeing that happen in the Congress, Mm -hmm. and I think we're going to see it throughout the country. That will take some of the pressure off of this uh, bill that is now pending. I'd like to ask you while you're with us, and, and it ties into this infrastructure debate, about the reopening, uh, about the return of the economy, because it seems you can't necessarily have one without the other in the effort to vaccinate uh, people and get businesses reopened. Does that help to create a better backdrop for this debate, to have the business community involved, to have workers, like you said, going back into the district? It, it certainly helps because the district is suffering enormously uh, because our um, restaurants and other retail is not being used. Now, I think everybody better start readjusting now because of what I've just said about teleworking. I don't think it'll ever be used in the way it was used before. Find out what the new normal is. And so we need everybody to get vaccinated. There's obviously another big one that's uh, right in your district, and that is the Capitol uh, complex itself. And I wonder if you could speak to security infrastructure around the U.S. Capitol and and what the reality there should be, in your opinion. Well, I had a bill to make sure there would be no permanent fencing. That bill is likely to become, uh, is very close to becoming law. There will be underground fencing in case of emergencies. We do not need to despoil the Capitol by fencing it. And that bill had bipartisan support in the House and the Senate. Mm -hmm. So I do expect that my bill to uh, eliminate any possibility of a permanent fence around the Capitol will become law shortly. What should be there to keep the Capitol safe? What should be there is underground fencing that in case of emergency could be put up. And that would require infrastructure spending, essentially, even if it it came in a different piece of legislation. It certainly would require infrastructure spending, and it would be well worth it. Well, as as you consider that, uh, is there there more to the conversation of securing the Capitol? We're coming at this from a point of infrastructure spending, of course, but there have been a lot of proposals, uh, not only to physically secure the building, but to go even further and, and investigate Uh, how some of this ever began and what kind of threats still exist? That will be important, but Republicans have resisted uh, a bipartisan investigation. So what you will see now are the committees doing investigations, which will be less bipartisan. They should have agreed to the proposal that would have divided 
equally between Republicans and Democrats. So now you're going to see, since Democrats control, you're going to see uh, a that they will have fewer witnesses uh, when they didn't take the best deal. Mm-hmm. Eleanor Holmes Norton is with us, Congresswoman from the District of Columbia, the D.C. delegate to the House on Bloomberg Sound On. I only have a minute left, but I have to ask you, I'm moving back to Washington next week after having been out of town for a while. And the last time I was there, it was cicada time. And I'm wondering if you can just give me a sense of what I'm in for. Uh, Everybody hears them but me. I go on my half hour walk (laughs) every day. And I don't know if I'm hearing cicadas or if I'm hearing birds. (laughs) But I want to assure you uh, that the cicadas don't bite. So come on back to Washington. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On. You made it to Friday as we loosen the tie here a little bit on the ride home. I hope you're not stuck in traffic too much longer. We get to talk politics as well with Bloomberg political contributors Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis. They're both here now. I didn't think I'd be talking about cicadas with Eleanor Holmes Norton when I woke up this morning, but some things you cannot predict. Jeannie, are you seeing cicadas everywhere? How bad is it? Well, no, in New York, thankfully, as you know, you were just here. We haven't seen them, but we keep hearing about them. And I know Rick down in D.C. Rick, <laughs> is your house covered? A lot. I got a few cicadas around here, but my dog thinks they're protein chips. So, you know, he keeps them clear in my yard. <laughs> Don't get me started on the cicada killers. I remember this as well from the last uh, time they emerged. There's a whole other bug that is even scarier than they are that eats the cicadas. You heard it here first. That'll be the next batch of stories. <laughs> Now, we were just talking about securing the capital as an element of infrastructure spending in that conversation with Eleanor Holmes Norton. Both of you have spent a lot of time in that building, and it seems to me that this conversation and, of course, Eleanor Holmes Norton uh, got to this herself, goes beyond fencing, that we need more answers and there will likely be more charges as this whole thing unfolds. Rick Davis, what do you want to see happen? What should it look like when a tourist or even uh, a member of Congress walks up to the complex? Yeah, you know, it would have been nice to have had a bipartisan commission, much like we've done in other crises, to determine, you know, what the what the optics and the reality should be as far as being able to get in and out of the public's house. But um, look, I mean, (laughs) the Congress just spent hundreds of billions, hundreds of millions of dollars on a brand new visitor center. I mean, it's really nice. I mean, uh, tourists. Uh, legitimate tourists don't have any problem getting in and out of the, uh, the Capitol. In fact, it's better than it's ever been. Uh, it, it's really um, uh, just a uh, an effort right now to figure out how to protect it in case of domestic attack. And you know, since we've just had one, it's top of mind for many Congress people. And and it's not a big ticket item, you know, money wise. I mean, compared to the infrastructure budgets of one point two trillion dollars, it's nickels and dimes. Yeah. So it, it, I think it's all about architecture and security and what makes people feel safe who work in the building. But just think about the way Rick just said that, Jeannie, to protect against the next attack. What should we be doing to prevent the next attack? 
And 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 he couched that domestic attack, yes, which right. is obviously the right way because we just saw one. But it's absolutely stunning. I was very very happy to hear to, to your question to Representative Holmes Norton that she had pushed and there was bipartisan support for underground fencing, uh, because I would hate as as she said to see permanent fencing at the Capitol, the People's House. You know, I think back to the 1970s when we used to be able to go there and you could, huh. you know, just it, everything was open in D.C. and since 9-11 that has changed a good deal and hate to see that change even more. So I was I, I do hope she's she's uh, right and that legislation goes forward and they find funding to do that. As Rick mentioned, it's really pennies compared to what they're talking about either side in terms mm. of infrastructure. Well, they're going to be back on Monday. I know we're going into what could be a hot and potentially slow summer on Capitol Hill, but lawmakers in the House will be back. And we learned today that big tech may have more to worry about than just taxes. This is a really important story, and it's a, it's a great Bloomberg story, and I want to get your take on this. As lawmakers in the House today drop five bills aimed at cracking down on the big fang companies, right? Think Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and would make it easier for the government to break up big tech, and it would also make it more difficult for big tech to get bigger, to acquire other companies. You can read about it on the terminal right now. These bills were announced by a Democrat, Right. David Cicilline of Rhode Island, he chairs the antitrust committee. And we've been hearing for months, maybe years from conservatives about the power of big tech. Rick, this is feeling bipartisan. Yeah, we, we've talked on the show many times about there are two things that unify Congress, uh, China and big tech. <laughs> and uh, and so today was big tech day and, and the, the Democrats are after them on on these um, uh, monopoly laws that you described. Uh, but that doesn't end the story. Um, uh, we've heard all throughout the year hearings and hearings about uh, uh, Section 230, you know, yes, and the protections right. that big tech has. Jim Jordan, Republican Senate, uh, congressman, dropped a bill, you know, because he claims that uh, uh, big tech has been censoring conservative speech. Mm-hmm. So everybody's got an angle on this, but there's only one target, and that's the fangs. The, of course, these are two very different angles, right, Jeannie? You've got conservatives uh, uh, complaining about censorship, accusing these companies of censoring conservative voices. Democrats are more concerned about too big to fail. Is that fair? Uh, that's absolutely fair. And and they are, as you were just talking about, joined together. And I think what is stunning uh, to me is you look back the number of years, now we're going on decades, that these organizations, these tech companies have been allowed to thrive without much control, regulation, restraint from Congress. Even as our, our you know, our nations overseas, we look to Europe, has have been regulating tech. We had not here in the U.S. do much. And I think today is a really important day because for the first time I think we may see not in you know next week but we may see in the short term we may see a bill or a set of bills go through that make this monopolistic behavior on the part of whether it's Apple or Google or Facebook or Amazon come to an end so it is the end of an era if you will if these bills or one version of them passes Boy, that would be a big one. And then we'll have to hear from Charlie Pellet, of course, on how the stocks would respond, because <laughs> that's a story that would continue uh, to echo back on itself on Wall Street. Uh, I want to get to uh, the, the big showdown with both of you guys. This is how we started the hour. It's how we're going to finish the hour here. Uh, so we had a great conversation uh, about Joe Biden's looming meeting here with Vladimir Putin. We spoke with Nick Wadhams about it. He's packing his bags. He's going to be over there covering it next week. It will have the attention of the world. And Jeannie, there's big pressure here, obviously, uh, for President Joe Biden, but he's been going through a lot of motions, some of which we discussed yesterday to try to 
kind of create a backdrop of credibility in this European alliance before that meeting. And, and I think as we look at this summit, and I am anxious to see how this pans out, as you were talking to Nick, we're hearing there may not even be a press conference yeah. afterwards. Isn't that Putin something? said he may go it alone if Biden chooses not to. But I think the stakes are higher for Biden than they are for Putin on this. And a big question I hear people in foreign policy debating about is what is success out of this meeting for Biden and the U.S.? And I do agree with the side that is saying Russia needs to be be reined in. A return to normalcy, in my mind, on Russia's part, will be success for Biden. And yet how you get them to turn their behavior to a quote-unquote good behavior is going to be very difficult for Biden to achieve. So I don't think it's enough that the Biden administration talks about a sort of, you know, return to normalcy and predictability and stability unless you get, you get the Russians to be reined in, both at home with their neighbors and in terms of their attacks on us, both cyber and otherwise. When I heard Rick Davis was going to be on with us today, I thought of only, well, three letters. This meeting coming up with Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin, the stakes are high. But I'm, I'm thinking back to, I believe, 2008. And we have sound on with late Senator John McCain. We all know that Putin is causing us trouble in many parts of the world because he's acting in what he perceives as his country's national interest, no matter how close and the friendship is between himself and President Bush. I looked into Putin's eyes, I saw three letters, a K, a G, and a B. <laughs> I looked into Putin's eyes and saw three letters. That, of course, following the, the famous statement from President George W. Bush that he looked into Putin's soul and saw something better than K, G, and B. Rick Davis you saw the, the front of Time magazine, the sunglasses, Joe Biden. What would John McCain tell him before this meeting? Yeah, I think he would give him the same advice that I think instinctively Joe Biden has. And they, they've, they've talked about uh, Vladimir Putin for a long time in their relationship. Uh, and, and that would be, you can't trust this man. He has not got the, the world's interests in mind, only his own uh, quest for uh, the return of the motherland. And, uh, and I think that that's Biden's instinct anyway. I don't think that he's naive about it. And, uh, and look, I mean, Biden upped at one. Uh, it's one thing to say you look in his eyes and saw KGB. Uh, Biden's already called him a killer in advance well, yeah. of this. So, I mean, like, he's making McCain look like a piker on this. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Rick was longtime advisor and close confidant to John McCain. Uh, I bet they talked about Vladimir Putin, Joe Biden, and John McCain, did they not? For sure. Uh, it was a constant conversation, um, both when uh, Joe Biden was in the Senate and, uh, and when he was vice president. And yeah. so this is not a uh, current topic. It's, as you pointed out, in 2008, uh, you could say the same thing about Vladimir Putin today that John McCain said at that time and, uh, and for many years prior to that. Not a heck of a lot has changed since then in this relationship, Jeannie, saved for Donald Trump. 
That, that's right. Donald Trump in between. And, and you know, I do think you, you, Rick was mentioning some of the harsh rhetoric that's gone back and forth and, and Joe Biden calling him a killer. And as we think about whether there's going to be a press conference afterwards, this is one of the things we're hearing is a concern from Biden's people that he may go off, uh, you know, off script, if you will, as Joe Biden has been known to do. Yes. And these are two tough talking guys. So as much as I would love to see them in a press conference, it's interesting to hear that they may want to keep Biden off the stage for that reason. I'm sure there's other reasons as well. But he has been known to use really choice rhetoric that could amp up a contest between Biden and, and Putin versus clamp it down. Real quick, uh, in our in our remaining 30 seconds, seconds, Rick, do you think they're going to have a news conference after that meeting? I doubt if it's a news conference. There may be some reports, but uh, hopefully they get something done on nuclear power. Nuclear so don't expect weapons. the bilateral. Rick Davis. And Jeannie Shee and Zeno, as always, Bloomberg political contributors, thank you so much for being here. I look forward to picking up this conversation next week. Broadcast is produced by Christine Barada and Matt Shirley. I'm Joe Matthew. Stay with us. We'll check traffic next and a whole lot more ahead on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.